Here's the things we're going to look through in the teaching of Jesus. This is a long extended discussion that he's having with the Pharisees. And what I'm going to do is break up this section, probably the way that your Bible does, the way that it looks at it here. In, there's a section on signs, a section of the unclean spirit, and then Jesus' mother and brothers. And the way that I would say this is that we're going to look for and have a discussion Jesus has on sign-seeking. And then I'm going to show that he has a discussion on what I'm going to call clean living. And then finally after that, we're going to have a look at what he means by will-keeping. So sign-seeking and clean living and will-keeping, sort of uh, in a casual way if you wanted to think about these, because there's going to be some tough topics come up. I might call each of these something like um, fishy riches and uh, demon party, and then maybe yo mama. So that's the, those are like the three sort of casual ways to describe the sections we're going to read. So let's look for these things together as we read from Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I would love to pray. Let's pray together. God, we rejoice in your transcendence this morning. There are not enough adjectives for all that you contain in beauty and excellence. There are not enough verbs to describe how active you are in sustaining and rescuing and saving and loving. We lack imagination to be able to describe your bigness, your goodness. The words of Scripture itself point to this incomprehensible nature that you have, possess, are, and always will be. So we have, as our confession, as a baseline, that you are other, set apart, completely beyond. 
And this makes us all the more joyful that you are present. You're here. God, thank you for the gift of your Spirit. We want to believe and experience this morning that it is better that Jesus go away because the Helper has come. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, be our Helper. Be the nearness of God in our hearts and in our minds. Give us a settledness of spirit. A conviction of soul. Give us righteousness. Show us beauty. I pray, God, that as we consider these words in Scripture, that our confession about these words would be most true. That they are not dead. Not ink on a page. But living and active. God, I'm grateful for the chance to be with this family, the family you've given us. I ask that you would heal and protect and care for those of us who are fighting through sicknesses and pressing against the fallenness of this world. And I ask now for a distraction-free, focused, joyful time in considering the hope that we have in Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. This is a difficult book in the Bible. Jesus is unveiling and sort of letting us peek behind the scenes at a few things that we do not have perfect information on. I think that if there are parts of Jesus' life and his ministry that make you go, wow, you could think of some of those. Mount of Transfiguration, his turning a few little bits of food into a feast for thousands. Clearly, his death and his resurrection, those would be things that make you go, wow. But the reality is, is that sometimes the things that he teaches and the things that he says also ought to make us say, wow, what wisdom is here? What is behind the scenes? And so I want to give at the outset a few caveats. I'm going to do my best to walk through, and I think that we're going to do a Bible study together, really, each of these sections to check through them. And there will be moments in here where I think it would be irresponsible of me to say, oh, well, let me tell you exactly what's happening with the demons. Because I don't know that we know. But we want to stir in ourselves a bit of awe and try to pull what we can, try to get the message, not miss the forest for the trees as we consider the teaching of Jesus. He is trying to help the Pharisees to see. He's trying to put glasses on them. He's trying to do the thing where they say A or B, B or A, C or D. He's trying to do whatever he can to show them who he is in front of him, and he does that through these sections. First, he responds to their request for a sign. So they are seeking signs. What does Jesus think of this? What do we make of them seeking signs? Well, he does not respond well. He tells them an evil and adulterous generation seek signs. The Pharisees and scribes have come to him, and they say, we want to see you do something. And the spirit of it, the way that Jesus responds, seems to indicate that they come with a kind of spirit as though he's a circus performer. It's like, do something. As though they're in control, and he is there to impress them. This kind of exchange likely happened many times throughout the ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 8, for instance, or Luke chapter 11, for instance, records a very similar exchange. They come and they ask for the sign. He says, no. And he brings up some of the similar examples. Jonah, Mark chapter 8, records similarly. And again, I think it's pretty good evidence that when more than one of the disciples in their accounting of the life of Jesus 
indicates something, it probably means that either they were all there and exchanged it or that it happened persistently. Much like you'd say, oh, you know my uncle, he's always saying. In fact, Matthew is going to record a similar thing in chapter 16, a few short chapters later. Again, they're coming to him and they're saying, give us a sign. Jesus points out that this says something about their hearts and their mind. In fact, he says it very plainly. That they're seeking for more signs, more evidence, more powerful, grand miracles shows that they are unwilling to see. I believe it should strike us, and perhaps Matthew wrote it in this sense, it should strike us that we've just come through chapter after chapter after chapter, town after town after town, for a long period of time with Jesus doing nothing but sometimes healing all who came to him. That's what the text of the Bible has said. There have been portions of the the world that Jesus walks through where all demon activity, all illnesses have been done away with. That's what the text of the Bible has been saying. And now those who are following him around, they come to him and they say, yeah, but could you do something for us? Like impressive? What does that mean? It means more that they are not confused as much as they are stubborn. They are not lacking evidence of who Jesus is. They simply do not want to admit who he is. They will quite literally see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. You've perhaps heard in family dynamics uh, some phenomenon called selective hearing. Have you ever heard of this phenomenon? It's like you want your kids to help with the dishes. They are oblivious. But you mentioned going for ice cream. They're they got the tie on at the door. They're ready to go. Perhaps, sometimes, I've heard, not in my marriage, but I've heard that sometimes communication is difficult because people hear what they want to hear or see what they want to see. And the point that is often pushed there, the reason that this is a dynamic is because oftentimes it shows the things that we want in life. And Jesus is saying, essentially to them, that them asking for a sign, continually putting God to the test, and remember, Scripture is pretty clear about this, do not put the Lord your God to the test. By putting Him to the test over and over, they are revealing that what they want is for Him to fail, not to succeed. They are pressing against all of the evidence that Jesus is who He says He is, and so one more sign is simply not going to do it. And so Jesus says, essentially, Well, you are given signs, and then he brings up two great signs from the Old Testament, or two great instances where God had shown himself powerfully. The first is one of the grand old felt board stories of Jonah. The second, perhaps one of the most astounding instances of a man and his gift from God, the wisdom of Solomon. So he says to them, you do have a sign. The sign is the prophet Jonah. So how is Jonah a sign for them. That might be what they would say. They'd say, well, this is legitimately a world removed. This is centuries and centuries ago. So how is the prophet Jonah a sign for them? Well, I believe it has a twofold meaning at least. The first is essentially this, that the great sign necessary, the only sign necessary for God's people, those who have a desire to obey him, a desire to walk with him, that the great sign that had been given to Nineveh is now being given to them, and that is that there is a clear call to repentance. 
It may not feel like it in the moment, but a clear call to repentance is one of the greatest gifts of God. It is a sign. You know in Luke 15, story of the prodigal son? He's eating the pig slops. He's kind of envious of the pigs because the pigs are getting more slops than him. You know that story? There comes a moment in that when he realizes his condition. It says that he comes to himself and he sort of wakes up. That might be akin to the idea of repentance. And it is in that moment the greatest gift, the greatest sign that can be given. Nineveh, the story of Jonah, is that they were given the sign of repentance. Jonah was called to go to them and to tell them to repent because judgment was coming. And it is a gift. I suppose one little diagnostic for the condition of our souls would be how we welcome an invitation to repent. It almost never feels great to have a good friend say to you like, hey, I just want to ask you about. Or hey, have you noticed that? But someone who has understood the freedom that we have in Christ, the invitation that we have to confess, will see that an invitation and a clear understanding of a need to repent is actually one of the greatest gifts ever. Our hearts will say that we wish we could hide, we wish we could continue on, but the reality is there's nothing more dangerous than getting away with it. The patterns and cycles that form by being able to hide and avoiding the topic of repentance are some of the most dangerous cycles in all of the world. And moments and opportunities where God himself sends a prophet and says, hey, I want you to wake up. Just notice this. Judgment is coming. You cannot live this way. Repent. That is one of the greatest gifts that could ever be given. This is a miraculous sign from heaven. And Jesus has come preaching the kingdom and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist came saying, repent. He was the forerunner, the one who had come before him. And Jesus is in effect saying, a clear call to repent from a prophet was enough for Nineveh, and it should clearly be enough for you. We'll come back to this as we get to the end of chapter 12, but Jesus also says, and just so you know, right now in the scheme of things, Nineveh that great evil city that you, don't, you didn't want to, or that Jonah didn't want to go and preach repentance to, they will judge you. You believe that you're the righteous ones judging everyone else, but Nineveh will actually rise up and judge you. These are, again, fighting words. Luke also records the similar thing in Luke 11. He says, just so you know, Nineveh, the ones who got the sign of repentance, <clears throat> they will rise up and judge you. So I think there's a second reason, though, that Jesus says that the sign of Jonah has been given to them. And he mentions it here. He says, just as Jonah, in verse 40, Matthew 12, verse 40, says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now this was spoken to disciples and Pharisees and those who were around him prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So they they wouldn't have had the insight that we have, that this is a foreshadowing, a looking forward, and yet it's as though Jesus is saying, I want you to know that not only have I come preaching repentance, but I will also be swallowed up. And there will be a great and grand miracle, but not the way that you want in your timing. Jesus is not against signs, things that point to the work of God or redemptive work. The cross will be a sign that sin has been taken care of. The resurrection will be a sign justifying the death of Christ and showing that he has overcome the grave. These signs will come, but they just haven't come yet. And Jesus 
he relates himself to Jonah in this moment. He says, I'm like Jonah, not only because I'm a prophet and I preach repentance, but I'm like Jonah in the sense that it will be my being swallowed up that will lead to rescue. This is one thing that has come to my attention as I read this, that perhaps I got this wrong my whole life. Like, I think if you would have asked eight-year-old me, you just imagine eight-year-old me, hey, tell me the story of Jonah. I would have said something like this, well, you better listen when God tells you to go somewhere or else he'll punish you by eating you with a fish. And I mean, in some sense, when you're a, ter- when you're a child, it's terrifying, right? It's terrifying to think that the fish punishment of being eaten could come your way. So as long as you were avoiding being eaten by a fish, you at least had a fighting chance. But here's what's interesting. Jesus points out that the clear and real understanding of the story of Jonah is that what seemed like death was actually his rescue. I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, this is amazing. The fish part of the story was the best part. He was drowning. He was dying. He was going to his death and being swallowed up was the rescue. So now it's as though Jesus is saying something like this. One day you'll come to understand that I'm going to be like Jonah too, and you're going to want to be swallowed up. Because unless a seed dies and goes into the earth, it cannot grow up with newness of life. And Jesus says, I'm going to be swallowed up by death. I'm going to go into the grave just like Jonah did into the fish. And what will look like death, what will feel like in an eight-year-old mind, a punishment, will ultimately be the path to rescue. Had Jonah not been swallowed up, there would have been no hope for Nineveh because the message would not have gotten there. And there certainly would have been no hope for Jonah who was spit out unto dry land. And Jesus is foreshadowing for them, saying, I want you to know that one greater than Jonah is, has come. There will come a day when my preaching of repentance and my offer of forgiveness will spread to the whole world because I have been swallowed up and will be delivered unto life. Now, a couple of words that are minor details, but they're important. One we're going to point out because it's going to grow in a kind of like a mossy stone rolling down a hill or a snowball. Have you, got, you guys know what snow is? Have you heard of this? Okay, so if you take a little snow and you roll it down a hill, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a title in here. He says the Son of Man will be the one that is in the heart of the earth for three days, three nights. I want us to note that title. He's, been used, he's used it already a couple different times. It may for us seem like a, a small thing. It is not a small thing. The Son of Man, according to Daniel chapter 7, through much of the Old Testament, the idea of the Son of Man is a major messianic title given to quite legitimately God's chosen prophet, the one who would bring ultimate rescue. Jesus actually is claiming more in the presence of the Pharisees by calling himself the Son of Man than he would be by calling himself Son of God. That is how rich the imagery of Son of Man is. So I want us to to note this phrase, and you're going to see it increasing as we get through Matthew until the Olivet Discourse where he describes it clearly. The Son of Man will come coming on the clouds. Will be coming on the clouds. So if you're curious about the insane rage of the Pharisees to this sweet teaching from Jesus, we ought to note his claims. He is 
now explicitly said, I am greater than a prophet, even one like Jonah who is so revered, and I am the Son of Man. These were massive claims. The second thing of note, it may seem like a minor detail, is that Jesus says, like Jonah, three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, Son of Man, three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And I've often heard this be a point of contention with the writing of Scripture, to say something like this, well, he wasn't actually in the earth for 72 hours. He's crucified on Friday evening. He's there through Saturday. Sometime in the morning as the, as the sun comes up, he's raised on Sunday. So clearly the Bible's wrong and can't be trusted. And all you Christians are weird because 72 hours did not go by. Have you ever heard any variation of such things? No, I'm the only one. You're like, wait a minute, I'm leaving. He's right. So don't take the wrong pull from here. The reality is essentially this, that in this part of the world, at this time period, the way that days and nights were considered is that if any portion of a day, any part of a day was included, that it would be described in the counting of the thing. So it's essentially part of Friday afternoon into the evening, over Saturday night during the day, into Sunday evening, and as the sun rises, the idea here is not that they are determining, and the Bible often does not fall into the trap of giving us scientific, precise, hourly info. That's a whole other topic. But three days, three nights. So there's a little response for you. You could say, like, well, the way they talked about time was parts of the days, and Jesus was not here to give them a lesson on chronology. That's always bothered me since I was a kid. So maybe I'm the only one, and the rest of you don't care and say, why did you talk about it? But there you go. He gives us one other thing. Remember I told you in a shorthand way we'd call this fishy riches. He says, here's another sign, by the way, that's been given to you. A king has come. A wise teacher has come. And you reject me, but I want to give you an example. Remember Solomon? The great miracle and sign of Solomon? Well, the queen of the south, and we can find this in 1 Kings, but the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, came. She took an arduous journey to bring great wealth and great offerings just to sit and listen and receive from the teaching of Solomon. And then Jesus explicitly says, in the same way that I am the Son of Man and I am greater than the prophet Jonah, I am greater than King Solomon, and yet you won't listen to me. To summarize here, even Nineveh, that great evil city, that's what it was described as in the Bible. Even Nineveh, And the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, these Gentiles, the ones who were far off, who by all intents and purposes would have been judged by you, they understood the message of God when it stood before them. Their eyes were open enough to see the sign that had been given. The queen of the south said, whoa, something strange is going on with that king. I'm going to go and submit myself and listen. Nineveh heard the call of repentance and repented. And Jesus says to them, I want you to know that these great examples, these signs that were given, actually stand in judgment of you. So be careful what you wish for. This would have been an insult to the self-righteousness of the religious leaders of the day. Jesus is essentially not only hinting at, but clearly stating now, That there is an invitation and a way and a path to righteousness in God's eyes that do not go through the ethnic 
or the careful legalistic interpretation of law-keeping that the Pharisees had. He's hinting at the great goodness of the gospel. And that is that a day that is coming when people like the Queen of the South and Nineveh will be in the presence of God proclaiming the need and desire for repentance. So his conflict is not downplayed here. Jesus is not being a great mediator in the sense that he placates the Pharisees or scribes who have come. He turns up the heat even more so. And says, if you would be willing to see, I'm right here. So that is his pressing back against sign keeping. Now he has, I believe, one of the most difficult passages to understand. We'll not spend a ton of time on it because I don't have a ton to say perfectly. But we called it clean living. Jesus seems to be able to make a connection here between the, the sort of stubborn refusal by the Pharisees to see these signs and their wanting of a sign And now he goes on and continues the teaching in verse 43 as though it makes total sense to everyone who's listening. You know, like how demons leave and come back and throw a party and you're worse off. And I read this and I go through it and I think to myself, well, I'm not following exactly. But let's give it a shot. It's a difficult passage. I think it's difficult because there is not a ton that we know about the exact working of of the spirit world. We do not know. We don't have a a full and robust demonology. I don't know if you felt this way already. Remember when the demons said, send us to the pigs. And then they went into the pigs. And we already got a bunch of these questions. Like I'd want to be like, wait, can the demons just go anywhere they want? Do they need a living being? Could they have said, send us to the trees? Could they? we, We don't know any of these questions. What we do know from Scripture is that there is a spirit world, that it's dangerous, and that Jesus is in full control of the whole thing. But here he gives this illustration. He says, when the unclean spirit, this demon, when it has gone out of a person, which I believe indicates something good. If an unclean spirit leaves a person, this is a good thing. There is an opportunity here. There's been something that has happened. Perhaps Jesus is saying something like this. You're asking for a sign. I've been doing them all over. I've been cleaning up around here. And sending demons off. And I just want you to know that you should be careful because if you do not repent, here's what can happen. And now he says, an unclean spirit goes and it passes through waterless places. I guess you could say this is a kind of desert-like thing. So they're in Nevada or someplace. I don't know. They're, they're just seeking and finding. He says it seeks rest. A desert is often an imagery in Scripture of a place that is void of God's provision. So this unclean spirit finds no rest. And then it says, why don't I go back to the house and just see? I got kicked out, but maybe I could go back. And when it comes, he says that it's empty, swept, and put in order. Now, I don't know about you, but if it stopped right there, you'd think like, yeah, so it can't come in. But instead, Jesus says, So he goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The last state is worse than the first. And then he says, so it will be with this generation. Now there is a lot that I do not know. Why does the spirit of the demon go to waterless places and why can it not find rest? We don't know. 
Why does the one demon go and find an empty house swept and put in order? Why does it need to go find seven other spirits? I think the idea here, seven is probably an imagery of a kind of perfect number of more. What does it mean for one demon or spirit to be more evil than the other ones? <laughs> there's, there's gradations of this apparently. We don't know. Except to say that it is the empty state. This is what seems to be put here. The empty state, the swept up, the put in order state that makes the person vulnerable. And I would surmise that perhaps the Pharisees and the scribes who kept things in order, who for all intents and purposes from outside appearances had things lined up, that perhaps they were to see in themselves a kind of mere image of this description. And because they were merely empty. Now note, the person had time. The unclean spirit is God. The person had time. And all they did was leave the house empty. The point seems to be this. That they cleaned up by avoiding all of the negative things. But were not filled up with good. There was nothing that filled the void. There were no habits. There were no affections, no love of God, no service of others, just mere avoidance. And I would not bank my entire reputation or job on these interpretations, so don't go there, but I would say that if I had to take a a stab at this, the idea seems to be here that Jesus is hinting that what God desires from a person and what leads to true life is not merely the avoidance of the most obvious kinds of evil. It is not merely an emptiness of life that is self-righteous and looks okay from appearances. But that in a moment, even if addictions are cast off, or even if there is a moment of relief from particular sins, even if you've avoided the worst of the habits, that more is needed, that life is needed. That the Spirit who brings life needs to fill up the places that have been voided. In other words, you need not merely an avoidance of evil, but a stirring, life-giving love of God. You need to replace. And I don't know, I can only think of moments in my life. I remember one time I was in a, in a class in grad school, and uh, we were talking about habits or kind of like things in life that you wanted to change. And the assignment from the professor was to avoid one thing that you've wanted to change. And I was thinking to myself, like, ah, I check Facebook too much. I don't know. I just think that's some time I want to reclaim. I had these grand visions. And so I thought, here was my goal for 30 days, no Facebook whatsoever, right? Just, I'm just going to totally get rid of this. And you know that now I'm dating myself, right? Remember that when people used to, young people used to, never mind. Anyway, so I was on Facebook a lot, right? And I thought, I'm just going to get rid of that stuff. I'm going to reclaim that time. And then what happened by about day four is that I was so bored that instead of filling the time, I found myself sitting there in my mind wandering. And right about that time is when I found Twitter. (laughs) And I hadn't done this before. But I felt righteous. I felt good about myself because I spent the next 26 days spending twice as much time on Twitter than I ever did on Facebook. But I had given it up. And here's what I learned about myself in that particular month. I learned that I was often filling my time because I felt a void. 
and that it wasn't good enough simply to empty. You see, my whole plan in this class was just get rid of Facebook, bad for me. And then I left myself vulnerable because I never asked the question, but what should be there? What am I avoiding? What am I running from? What am I escaping? Now, this is not to say that diversions and recreation and you know, reading something for fun is negative. But the reality is this, that the goal of a human being made in the image of God is to be filled up and brimming with life of God, affections for Him, love for Him, service for others, not a life that is merely clean and in order, but empty. That kind of seems to be like what Jesus is saying to them. And again, just like with Nineveh, remember he says, be careful what you wish for. You keep asking for these signs. I want you to know Nineveh is going to judge you. They're going to say, you got what? How many signs? Jesus was there and you didn't repent? And he says to them, be careful what you wish for. I'm the king, king of kings here and I'm wise. And that queen of the south, she's going to rise up and judge you. And I believe that maybe he's saying this. I want you to be careful what you wish for. Because you want me to do signs and miracles as a circus act, but I want you to know, having seen the signs and remaining stubborn, you may end up worse off than before. You may end up more hardened than before. Now, all that to say, I'm not sure. (laughs) This is an amazing look behind the scenes. I can only imagine that there is a spiritual sight of the forces of darkness and the overcoming power of good that must be unbelievable to look into. Like maybe in heaven there's Oculus 29 and you just put that thing on and you're like, whoa, there they, there's the waterless demons. You know what I mean? Not, they're not in heaven. I'm going to stop now because there's so much I don't know. All right, finally, one last section I said will-keeping. So he has sign-seeking, then he has clean living, and then he's describing to them will-keeping. What is the will of the Father? And what does that lead to? Again, a sort of odd interaction. We don't get all the context with it, but there's a moment when he's speaking, he's teaching. He's doing the work for which he has come. And it says that his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And he replies sort of harshly. Like, at a minimum, kind of, there's a little bit of teenage angsty spirit in it. It's what it could feel like. Where you think to yourself, well, that's interesting. He's kind of bothered by them. But he turns and tells the story. He says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? In other words, he uses this moment where the mom and the brothers are asking to speak with him while he's doing his work, and he uses it for a teachable moment for those who are listening. He stretches out his hand toward them and he says, here are my mother and brothers. Now, he does not officially reject. He's not, there's not a doctrine to be met out of this. Jesus is caring toward, in fact, one of his last phrases on the cross as he's dying is to take care of his mother. He instructs those who are there to take care of her. He is not breaking all familial binds, but he is making a point. He's making a point that the great ministry that he's come to do is to expand the family of God beyond mere ethnicity. And if you're paying attention, this is a letter that's been written to in an exchange with Pharisees and scribes, and so this is very relevant. 
Who gets in and how do they get in? And who is God the Father of? And so Jesus uses this opportunity and He says, I want you to know that there is a reality here where I have brothers and sisters and mothers, close family that I'm inviting to me, and they will get in by doing the will of my Father. We don't have time to handle the whole controversy or the whole discussion of of Mary and her place and what has taken place, but I would just say that it is a, a standard sort of let's stand on this Protestant sort of doctrine that Jesus did in fact have earthly brothers. There's an entire teaching from a Roman Catholic tradition that says that Mary did not have any other children, that she remained a perpetual virgin for the rest of her life. I think that the clear evidence of Scripture is that this is not so. So we can't get into that completely, but here is one bit of evidence that says his mother is there and his brothers. You hear from other places and they're asking to speak to him. And what he does is says, I do have a family and I've come to invite a family, but it's not merely this physical family. That there is a hope to be part of this family, to have a father in heaven through doing the will of my father. So what is the will of the father? Well, the will of the father, according to scripture, is to believe in the one whom he sent. To repent. To confess Jesus Christ. To believe in your heart that he is Lord and to confess with your mouth and then you will be saved. You will be adopted in. Jesus is, again, unveiling just a little bit of this great doctrine of adoption. The reality is is that God has purposed a family. He has purposed to invite all who will come, all who will listen, all who will give up their own striving so that He could be a perfect Father to them. This imagery would have been hard for them to swallow. Because their idea was is that the only favored ones, the one who were in God's family, were Jewish people who were keeping the law according to their standards. But Jesus now once again points to this idea, as he already had with Nineveh, and he already has with the Queen of the South, that there is coming a day when all who have repented and confessed Jesus will be swallowed up in the great grand family of God. This is the gospel made better. This is the gospel, not made better, but the gospel declared to be as good as it is. And it would have been something for them to wrestle with. Jesus was controversial to the point of being put to death because he said to them to be filled up with repentance and love for and the will of the Father is better than to have been born in the right circumstances to the right family and to keep the rules according to the way that you describe them. He's describing a future where those who are righteous and in the presence of God are the Gentiles as well as those repentant Jews who would see and receive Jesus. The reality is is that the Pharisees and the scribes were thinking too small. They had a penchant for control, a desire for Jesus to perform for them. They would not humble themselves and to see it as a beautiful thing that the kingdom was here and the kingdom was for all who would come in faith. What Jesus is beginning to do Just like he does when he says, like Jonah, I'm going to go into the earth. He's beginning to point out the mechanics of his death and resurrection. He's beginning to show that his ministry and his rescue is going to be far broader than they ever could have imagined. 
And that there is coming a day when not just Nineveh, not just the Queen of the South, but great lands yet discovered, languages yet developed, generations yet unborn, will hear the message, the sign of the person of Jesus and His death and His resurrection, and they will be brought into the family of God. You know, the Bible ends with this great picture that should have been a blessing to the Pharisees. should have been something they rejoiced in, but they could not see it. Jesus is pointing forward to the scene before the throne. Revelation chapter 7 is one of the most profound images of this. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. This is what John sees. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The great sign of Jesus is to open the way back to God by listening to His words and confessing Him. And in that way, we will obtain a righteousness that is more than the Pharisees and the scribes. They could not see it. They refused to humble themselves. The question is, have we humbled ourselves? Do we have the Heavenly Father as our Father? Do we know one another as brothers and sisters? Is Jesus our great brother? If you would have Him, then this is our greatest and deepest reality. We are more bound together in the family of God than any other earthly thing that binds. Let's pray together.